Hello everybody and welcome back to whatever. Let's get started. I have to apologize that it has been such a long time since I've put out an episode. The last one, of course, being the one with my brothers, which was really fun. We, all three of us have podcasts and never collaborated all together like that at the same time. So that was a lot of fun. Today, uh, you know, it's December 7th and y'all will hear this tomorrow more than likely because I will be scheduling it tonight to go out tomorrow. But as I'm recording this episode, December 7th, 2023, it marks the 82nd year um, or the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks. You know, we all know the famous speech, you know, um, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. Um, <clears throat> I really like World War II history and all that stuff. I have a couple books I'm asking for for Christmas this year, one of which covers um, a topic that I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. And um, so I, I thought it was really crazy and cool that um, it just so happened to fall right on the, the 82nd year. Um, it's it's incredible. So I wanted to read um, um, a little bit here from the Britannica.com uh, at the Pearl Harbor event attack. Um, it says... Pearl Harbor attack, December 7, 1941. Uh, a surprise aerial attack on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor on Oahu Island, Hawaii, by the Japanese that precipitated the entry of the United States into World War II. The strike climaxed a decade of worsening relations between the United States and Japan. So, you know, most people who read much about World War II and any, any of its... Um, history, especially what took us into, took the United States into World War II, um, was, this was the precursor to our entry into that. So let's, uh, read a little bit more here. Uh, this is the prelude to the war, still on the same website. In the late 1930s, American foreign policy in the Pacific hinged on support for China, which we know Japan invaded China and, uh, a lot of terrible things occurred there. Um, an aggression against China by Japan, therefore, necessarily would bring uh, Japan into conflict with the United States. So, long before uh, Pearl Harbor, th they were um, there was tension. As early as 1931, the Tokyo government had extended its control over the Chinese province of Manchuria, and the following year, the Japanese cemented their hold on the region with the creation of the puppet state Manchuoko, a clash at the Marco Polo Bridge near Beijing on July 7th, 1937, signaled the beginning of open warfare between Japan and the, and the United Front of, the, of Chinese Nationalists and the Chinese Communist Party. In response, the United States, governed, uh, the, <clears throat> the United States government extended its first loan to China in 1938. In July 1939, the U.S. announced the termination of the 1911 Treaty of Commerce and Navigation with Japan. 
Beginning in the summer of 1940, the U.S. began to restrict the export to, uh, uh, to Japan of materials and uh, useful in war. Between June 1940 and the fateful crisis um, of December 1941, the tension constantly mounted. In July of the, this, that year, 1941, uh, by which time the Japanese had occupied all of in, uh, Indochina and had entered into an alliance with the Axis powers of Germany and Italy. The U.S. government severed all commercial and financial relations with Japan. Japanese assets were frozen, and the embargo was declared on the shipments to Japan of petroleum and other vital war materials. Militarists were steadily gaining in, uh, in influence in the Tokyo government. They bitterly resented USA to China, which by this time had, had been stepped up. They saw in the German invasion of the Soviet Union an unrivaled opportunity to pursue a policy of aggression in the Far East without danger of an attack upon their rear by the forces of the Red Army. Nonetheless, negotiations looking to find some kind of understanding between the United States and Japan took place through the autumn of 1941, and not until near the end of November did it become clear that no agreement was possible. So just a lot of reading to give you some back history to what led up to Pearl Harbor. The sad thing is when you read on and on and uh, is that <clears throat> there were people in the, the government and the military that um, did kind of know something was going to happen and they, uh, you know, a lot of miscommunication was going on and lack of just, um, I mean, just lack of communication. It's not miscommunication, it's just a lack of communication, really. Um, but it was, it was terrible. But I read all that because um, obviously when Pearl Harbor took place, we saw a surge in... Um, young men and women wanting to join the forces to go fight for their country. So I pulled up, uh, let's see, it's nationalw2museum.org. It says the U.S. military personnel, this is a breakdown of numbers um, starting from 1939 through 1945. So I'm going to read you some numbers here. In 1939, the Army had an estimated 189,839 uh, in its ranks. The Navy, 125,202. The Marines had 19,432. And the Coast Guard isn't listed here because it says that the Coast Guard is not listed, uh, is only listed at the wartime strength. So 1939, we weren't in the war yet. But so that brought our total defense numbers to soldier-wise to 334,473. 1940, the numbers go up. The Army now has 269,023. The Navy goes up to 160,997. The Marines are at 28,345, which brings our national defense total to 458,365. In 1941, Pearl Harbor hits, and the numbers 
jump insane. So the army goes from 269,000 and some change to 1,462,315. The Navy went up to 284,427. The Marines go up to 54,359, which brought our national total to 1,801,101. Then in 1942, the numbers, I mean, now these are not all volunteers obviously there was drafts and all kinds of things so by 1942 the numbers uh, it's insane again we go to th- we're up from 1.4 to 3 million 75,608 in the army to 640,570 in the navy 142,613 in the marines the coast guard now jumps in to this because now they're having their uh, wartime strength calculated at 56,716, which brings us to a total now in 1942 of 3,915,507. And these numbers, I'm going to read the rest of them because it's just crazy. The numbers just constantly, constantly grow. So 1943, 6 million. 994,472 Army soldiers. Navy sees 1,741,750. The Marines is at 308,523. The Coast Guard, 151,167 bringing us now to a grand total of 9,195,912 servicemen and women. 1944, the Army goes up to 7,994,750. The Navy is up well over a million more at 2,981,365. The Marines... 475,604. The Coast Guard gained a little traction at 171,749, which brings our national defense total, uh, mean boots on the ground, 11,623,468. The last year that's registered here is 1945. So the army is up to 8,267,958. The navy goes up to 3,380,817. The marines don't go up a whole lot. Uh, but they're at 474,680. So it was just a little little boost for them. The coast guard is down a little bit by 1945 from 171 to 85,783 bringing by 1945 our ground our ground forces strength to 129,238 the the reason I brought all that up is because today's story involves a a, um, it, it revolves around an incident commonly referred to as the uh, Chichijima incident and 
when I first heard this a year ago, I sat on it because um, I wanted to. I wanted to do it, um, but I wanted to uh, read a little bit more about it. And then you know, life happens and other things pop up. And this is going to be a lot of reading, and um, so I didn't want to do it too quickly and not do it justice. Upon hearing of the Pearl Harbor attack, while a student at Phillips Academy in, da- in Andover, Massachusetts, George decided he wanted to join the Navy to become an aviator. Six months later, after graduation, he enlisted in the Navy on his 18th birthday and began pre-flight training at the Univers- University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Huh, which I used to work in Chapel Hill, that's crazy. After completing the 10-month course, he was commissioned to... Um, an ensign in the U.S. Naval Reserve on uh, June 9th, 1943. Several days before his 19th birthday, making him the youngest naval, uh, one of the youngest naval aviators. After finishing flight training, he was assigned to Torpedo Squadron VT-51 as a uh, photographic officer in September of 1943. As part of Air Force Group 51, his squadron was based on U.S. San Jacinto. In the spring of 1944, San Jacinto was part of the Task Force 58 that participated in operations against Marcus and Wake Islands in May and then in the Marianas during June. On June 19th, the task force triumphed in one of the largest air battles of the war. During the return of his aircraft from the mission, George's aircraft made a forced water landing. The destroyer USS uh, Clarence K. Bronson rescued the crew, but the plane was lost. On July 25th, Ensign um, uh, George and other pilot received credit for sinking a small cargo ship. After George was promoted to Lieutenant Junior Grade on August 1st, San Jacinto uh, commenced operations against the Japanese in the Bonin Islands on September 2nd, 1944. George piloted one of the four aircraft from the VT-51 that attacked the Japanese installations on Chichijima. For this mission, his crew included Radio Man 2nd Class John Delaney uh, and Lieutenant Junior Grade William White, USNR, who substituted for George's regular gunner. During their attack, four TBN Avengers from the VT-51 encountered intense aircraft fire. While starting the attack, George Aircraft was hit and his engine caught on fire. He completed his attack and released the bombs over his target, scoring several damaging hits. With his engine on fire, George flew several miles from the island where he and uh, one other crew member on the TBN Avenger bailed out of the aircraft. However, the other man's chute did not open and he fell to his death. It's terrible. It was never determined which man bailed out with George. Both Delaney and White were killed in action. While George anxiously awaited for hours in his inflated raft, several fighters circled uh, protectively overhead until he was rescued by the lifeguard submarine, the US fin- USS Finback. During the month he remained on Finback, George participated in 
uh, countless rescue missions for other pilots. So the planes circle overhead to protect them, obviously, because he bailed from, you know, in view of the island and what would happen is <clears throat> the defending soldiers on the island, the Japanese, they would they would go out if they could and pull sailors who had bailed um, to hold as prisoner and or ransom or what just whatever they sickly you know whatever sick reasons they wanted to hold them. Um, and so that gets us into our story, the Chichijima incident. So we got to go a little back here to give you uh, just to give you a little more uh, context here. On this island, the commanding officer who um, was in command of all the, I think it was like 25,000 troops were on this island. Um, so he, he was in command of several thousand troops. This com- officer's name was Yoshio, Yoshio Chachibana. Tachibana was a native of, I can, I'm sorry if I cannot pronounce all these names and words, but it says he was native of Ahim Prefecture. It's um, a little like province type town thing in Japan. After After graduating from a private school, he attended the 25th class of Imperial Japanese Army Academy and graduated in 1913. He had a relatively undistinguished early career as an officer. From from, uh, September 1916 to January, he studied gymnastics at the uh, Army Toyoma School. He was promoted to captain in August 1923 and in March 1924 commanded a battalion of the IGA 12th Infantry Regiment. He uh, uh, subsequently served on the staff of the IGA the 11th Division, and was sent as an army representative to the Kamaatsu Commercial High School. He became a major in August 1930 and lieutenant colonel in August 1935. During the mid-1930s, he was assigned to the Manchuoko Imperial Army. And that was, um, so after they invaded uh, Manchuria, they, they set up like a puppet state and they sent in Japanese military force um, to uh, police that. Um, So he was um, assigned there for a while. Um, And he was given command of the IGA 65th Infantry Regiment, uh, which saw combat at the Battle of Zhejiang Yichang (laughs) in the Second uh, Sino-Japanese War. In 1942, Chachibana was assigned to the staff of the Hiroshima Regional Defense Command and promoted to Major General in March 1943. In May 1944, he became commander of the IGA 1st Independent Combined Brigade, which was tasked with the defense of the Agosara Islands. I, I know I'm probably butchering some of these names. Against invasion by American forces in the preliminary preparations to Operation Downfall. He was further promoted to, a, uh, to Lieutenant General on March 23, 1945 and given command of the IG 109th Division. In mid-1945, due to the Allied naval blockade, the 25,000 Japanese troops on Chichijima had run low on supplies. 
However, although the daily rate, uh, ration of rice had been reduced from 400 grams per person to down to 240, um, the troops were in no risk of starvation. Um, not really sure how that was, but I mean, they must have just been, it must have not been a completely unsupplied island. And what later came, uh, came to be called the Chichijima incident. Um, so now we're going to get into the, the meat of what I want to talk about and why this is so fascinating. Um, as uh, George um, went down, he, uh, you know, we, we already read that he was rescued and, um, uh, you know, went on to help rescue other uh, downed uh, pilots. But eight of the the um, pilots that were on the same mission with George were not so lucky. Um, the reason this particular event is so um, kind of uh, probably unfamiliar to many is because it was not until... Well, so this happened in uh, 1943, the incident that we're going to talk about. Um, the, uh, the report of what took place didn't come out f for decades. It was years and years and years and years. But so we're going to jump into the Chichijima incident. In late 1944, Japanese soldiers... Um, captured um, eight American airmen on Chichijima in the Bonin Island chain. So before we go forward, the thing that I just can't get my head around, um, or I just can't quite understand, was that um, the the acts of just atrocity that the um, uh, the the Japanese forces carried out on soldiers you know military and civilians was just uh, just mind-blowing and just so disturbing um, and so I started uh, just kind of doing some light research as to you know just like you know what does someone have to say about why this would be and I came across one um, element here that I had read before, but um, it was that the, the Japanese soldiers, new recruits from the very beginning, were were taught and indoctrinated, as this article said, um, in the way of Bushido, which just translates to roughly a way of the warrior. Uh, the code of conduct of the samurai or bushai warrior class of pre-modern Japan. And basically what ended up happening is after like intense um, indoctrination into this philosophy, um, the Japanese forces began to lose, well, they didn't begin, they, they didn't have any, they had no respect for um, uh, 
surrendered forces. So if they they took prisoners and they were, you know, they they had they had zero uh, empathy. They 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 looked at them as losing all right of respect and decency um, because it was cowardice to surrender. I mean, we all know that how famous you know, Japanese officers were at the time that would, you know, instead of being taken prisoner, they would kill themselves and have all their, they'd run themselves through with knives and they would have all their officers do the same. So when they had prisoners, they looked at that as just extreme cowardice. And so it was, there was like no holds bar as what was going to be done to, um, to soldiers, you know, uh, that were prisoners, POWs. And so the story picks up with eight airmen that were captured. And the incident goes on to say, uh, and the report that came out many, many years later, says that um, um, what happened when these soldiers got to the island and they were, you know, uh, held, uh, Yoshio Tachibana decided he was going to maybe boost morale of the troops. You know, they weren't like starving apparently. They they weren't um so it wasn't like uh what ensued was because of like a need. Um but a lot of the reading describes Tachibana as a sadist. Um and so what he took on himself to do was um, to kind of make a game out of these soldiers, these American pilots, one of which um, he had in one of, so he had all eight of them there and he, he had all uh, his, his soldiers around and he um, had one of them just systematically bayoneted um, in front of all his comrades sitting there watching that. And um, and then they threw his body into, they dragged him off into the woods or the forest there, or the jungle, I should say, and they buried his body. And then Tachibana you know, was also going on looking through some of the reading he was not just a sadist but he was like an alcoholic on like an extreme level um and so he would uh you know he would get staggering drunk and then uh just lose all control of his faculties and his just mental processes and um so he he asked his um surgeons on the island to go dig up the body because he felt like him and his uh, officers uh, would be enlightened and they would it be uh, it'd be interesting to eat human flesh so he had um, the bayoneted killed pilot dug back up and part of his uh, body, I think it, like his thigh, I think it was what the reading said. And, um, 
and served to him, you know, himself and his um, uh, other officers. And um, and then it just gets just gets a little a uh, little little darker. So he um, after enjoying that apparently. Um, he um, decided that he was going to um, um, he was going to bayonet one of the other soldiers, and so he had him escorted into like this wooded, like this open field area where they would be, uh, you know, they could just do what they wanted to do. And this particular uh, soldier did not want to go out like that, so he started being belligerent and fighting back and uh, um, put it sticking his neck out to um, basically uh, indicate that I well, I want you to decapitate me. I, I want you to kill me. I'm not going to be tortured and, and executed like this. Um, so this went on for a few minutes and eventually um, the, the soldier trying to restrain him did eventually get irritated and they did um, just decapitate him on the spot and bury his body which was also dug up and parts of I think now uh, the story went on to say that he uh, ordered his um, Tachibana ordered his surgeons to remove the organs like the liver and um, other things like that, to now serve up to his um, officers and himself. And apparently not all of the um, the soldiers on the island thought this was, was great. Apparently the story says here that some of the, uh, um, the officers and soldiers threw up they 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 it wasn't like every single Japanese soldier on that island was enjoying cannibalizing people but Tachibana being a sadist just in his it just uh I mean I just can't hardly imagine it but um you know it's kind of like like a coup needs to take place and he needs to uh you know be executed by his men but you know that was just the Japanese culture and the mindset of soldiers in the IGA was just um, completely different than anything we could we could have comprehended at the time and what gets even darker is that the report goes on to say that the rest of the soldiers are eventually executed all in this same gruesome fashion, fashion and buried um, but indicate that um Tachibana decided he he wanted to start having live flesh so he thought it would be better so some of the wounded soldiers apparently were um cannibalized alive well so they like they weren't eaten off of but they the soldiers the <laughs> the airmen were were subject to having parts of their body removed to um, be served to the officers, the Japanese officers on the island. And when 
the island was inevitably taken and Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, were, um, were bombed and they had to, um, they surrendered when, um, they went looking for, um, those soldiers, the, uh, officers in Tajibana, even not wanting to admit to what was done, uh, told the, the American forces that they had been killed, that, that, so like one of them had been sent, um, to Japan to be interrogated and in prison in Japan, and then the other ones were, uh, killed on the island, and they blamed their persistent. The, they blamed the the Americans' persistent bombing of the island chains as the cause of their death. And apparently, that wasn't um, such a far stretch. So they believed it to an extent until uh, American uh, naval uh, army, like naval investigators, I think it said, uh, looked into it and. Um, came to uh, feel that that was not accurate and that was possibly a lie. Um, and so years and years and years go by and a, uh, let me find the article, um, an author by the name of James Bradley put this story in a book called Flyboys, A True Story of Courage. And it says, details several instances of cannibalism of World War II, allied uh, prisoners by their Japanese captors. Um, it says that Bradley claims that in this included, but uh, not only ritual, this is not only ritual, can, ritual cannibalization of the livers of freshly killed prisoners, but also the cannibal, cannibalization for substance of living prisoners over the course of several days, amputating limbs only as needed to keep meat fresh. I mean, you can imagine having parts of your body slowly removed to go feed somebody because that was fresh meat. Um, but stories of cannibalism throughout the Japanese military is massively common and uh, just disturbing acts of just grotesque violence, uh, one of which when they invaded the you know, Manchuria, they, two officers had a bet with each other to see who could decapitate the most people, not soldiers, but people. So civilians, you know, didn't matter. And the article I saw said, had a picture of the two of them side by side with their, you know, with their swords. And, um, one of them had a was at standing at 105 people, and the other one or something like 100 and something. So between the two of them, they decapitated over 200 people, just just for the fun and the sport of doing it. Um, and they were just, but you know, the military was trained to have no empathy and no mercy, like zero mercy, for anyone, let alone, like I said earlier, anyone that surrendered to them they they thought well if you're going to surrender you should, you should die i mean that, that's the way they they were brought up in their training is you didn't surrender you died which is the only reason they were ever able to get anyone to jump into planes and kamikaze themselves into buildings and ships and all that um 
But the reason this story is so fascinating is because this story and the events around this island, which is a very, very small island. I think they said the whole thing is smaller than Central Park. Um, it says, uh, if I can find it, I'm going to make sure I find it again. Oh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's 700 miles south of Tokyo. Um, the eight airmen, Lloyd, Wolof, Grady York, James, Jimmy Dye, and Glenn Fraser Jr. And then Marvel, Marv, Mershon, Floyd Hall, Warren Earl Vaughn, and Warren Hinden Blog, Hinden Lang, huh, were captured and eventually executed. And then there was an, there was a ninth soldier that was shot down, a pilot, sorry. Um, there was eight captured, one bailed. And we read earlier, his name was George, and he um, he thankfully was able to get away after successfully bombing the radio tower that he was tasked to destroy on the island. Um, he made it a few miles offshore, inside of the island, bailed out like we already read. But this story, if things had gone different for George, the... The the future of our of our country would have been completely different, and um, it's it's just incredibly fascinating. So, the ninth airman who was shot down, cap and evaded capture, was rescued, went on to help rescue other pilots. Um, he was twenty years old at the time. And he did not know about what he uh, uh, was spared from. He had no idea until years and years and years later. And the reason it's so fascinating is because George went on to become president of the United States. The young 20-year-old pilot George that bailed out was George H.W. Bush. And he did not find out until he had become president and I think even, you know, uh, moved on past the presidency until um, the report came out and this book came out. And so, I mean, you can just imagine if George H.W. Bush had found himself on this island, you know, we wouldn't have had the, the, the Bushes in office, which, you know, uh, I mean, you just, you know, you can just imagine how the course of history would go without a, a you know, a sitting president being, you know, uh, a past president in place that put things, you know, good or bad. Like, you know, you never know which way, you know, you know, time and history would have gone. But the fact that George H.W. Bush, um, uh, was spared this and didn't know it was just fascinating to me he had no idea um i mean everybody knows that the japanese you know just tortured and killed people but the whole idea you know the whole um realization of the cannibalism and the the level of the torture that these men in uh had to endure uh was so much more than what the american populace was um, ready to ingest or digest, I should say. Um, so from what I can, from what I've been reading, 
the story was sat on for a while until um, James Bradley actually did research and found the um, the documents and put it out for the world to see it. Um, so it, it, it's um it's just incredible. Uh, it's incredible. Um, and the thing is, uh, the sad thing. I mean, Tashibana and all his officers that you know took place you know and did everything uh took those orders and ran with it and they were all executed after they were tried um and they were um well actually let me, I, I gotta back up here um Tajiban alongside other uh, Japanese personnel were tried in August 1946 in relation to the execution of uh, U.S. Navy airmen and the cannibalism of at least one of them. During August 1944, um, because military and international law did not spe uh, specifically deal with cannibalism at the time, they were tried for murder and prevention of an honorable burial, of an honorable burial which in the Japanese culture was a, was a big deal. Um to have a, a dishonorable burial. Um, so they actually weren't tried on the cannibalism. They were, they were tried on the, the torture and execution of the, the POWs, but the cannibalism didn't come into play. Um, this case was investigated in 1947 in a war crimes trial and the 30 Japanese soldiers prosecute, and there were 30 additional soldiers prosecuted Four officers, including Lieutenant General Tachibana, Major Matoba, and Captain Yoshi, were found guilty and hanged, so they were all killed. Um, all enlisted men and probationary medical officer uh, Tadashi Teraki were released um, after serving eight years. Um, so it's kind of terrible. Um, but this is Vice Admiral Mori Kunizo, who commanded Chichijima Air Base at the time of the incident, was, one, uh, was of the belief that consumption of human liver had medical benefits. He was initially sentenced to life imprisonment for his involvement in the incident. However, after his subordinates were convicted of slaughtering prisoners during their time on the Southern Front, he was sentenced to death and subsequently hanged in a separate trial organized by the Netherlands uh, for war crimes committed in the Dutch East Indies. I know you are all out there probably saying, wow, this is a really heavy, kind of morbid topic to be talking about right before Christmas, you know, and, you know, you're, you're right, you know, it's not festive, but, you know, today being the 82nd, I believe I said earlier, the 82nd anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, which led us into the war, which obviously led to George H.W. Bush enrolling, uh, enrolling, <laughs> enlisting into the Navy. Uh, I just thought it was, I just thought it was appropriate. Like I said, I'd heard about this story a year ago and uh, wanted to finally get it out there into the ether for all my listeners who may not have heard this. Um, but, you know, we'll be doing more World War II stuff if I can help it. And do definitely stay in tune for more of a Christmassy, feel-good, fireplace, hot chocolate drinking episode. It will be coming. Um, but again, 
you know, thank you for joining me and I, uh, thank you for in, um, w- waiting around for such a long time for another episode to hit your ears. But here it is. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, these aren't my thoughts. These aren't my opinions. These literally are history. So,